0: All right, open your Bibles to the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon. We'll be looking at an introduction to the book, a background, a setting. And then we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 again as we begin this this mighty book, this little book. The Song of Solomon is a moving love story between a young country girl, the Shulamite woman, and a king named Solomon. It's in a delicate story form that these lovers express their strong passion and their deep longing for each other. The young girl, the Shulamite woman, compares her love for her husband to the hope, the end of a a desperate search While Solomon compares his bride's beauty to picturesque gardens, to beautiful gardens and delicious fruit. Yet even in this eloquent expression of the passion between a bride and bridegroom, there's an exhortation to remain sexually pure before they're married. In Song of Solomon 2.7, in one of the paraphrased versions says, Do not excite love, don't stir it up until the time is right, and you are ready. And in this way, the book celebrates human sexuality within the context of marriage. The book has not always been understood in this way. Jewish scholars around the time of the birth of Jesus interpreted the book allegorically or symbolically, stating that it describes the love of God for Israel. And in the same way, some Christians have taught that the book speaks of the mystical relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. But you don't have to get into allegorical or symbolic meanings to understand this book. The Song of Solomon celebrates the beauty and intimacy of a married love in a story form. And it teaches that a lasting marriage requires dedication, commitment, and strong loyalty between a husband and wife. The Song of Solomon also presents a perfect picture of how human love can be expressed under God's blessing. This is a very important subject. Now, there are some critics who have said that you know that Christianity, Christianity's standards for marriage ignore or don't give much value to sexual relationships. But the Song of Solomon disproves this, and the Song of Sol- the Bible, I should say, the Bible often repeats the biblical warning against sex outside of marriage. But it also proves that God not only approves of, but also encourages sexual pleasure within marriage. So, if the Bible is the book about God, what does a story about human sexuality have to do about God? Or theology? Well, to answer that question, it's important to remember that the Bible doesn't just describe who God is and what God does. It also tells us what God desires for his people. And the Song of Solomon gives us an example of how God created male and female to live in happiness and full fulfillment. People are created, God created us as sexual beings. So it would be wrong to suggest that the full experience of of humanity is impossible apart from sexual, sexual union in marriage because this would disqualify the widowed, the divorced, the celibate, including our savior who was celibate and at the same time remember god ordained marriage from the beginning of creation he instituted marriage he instituted marriage before government and the church because you see without the family you have neither one Man and woman were to become one flesh. Genesis two twenty four says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, books and, and writers have tried to explain what it means to become one flesh, but without much success because it's something that God does. It's something that God does and only God can do. And because of its emphasis on human love, this book, Song of Solomon, gives us a wonderful variety of expressions for love. And it's probably and it maybe the richest selection in all of Hebrew scripture. But within this celebration of love, the book condemns unchaste relations outside of marriage. And in particular, sexual experimentation, that is, having many. Relationships, sexual relationships outside of marriage, before marriage, I should say. So, without a doubt, this book may contain the Bible's strongest argument for abstaining from all sexual intercourse before marriage. Origen, who was a teacher, and Jerome, who was a church father, they tell us that because of its explicit language, ancient and modern Jewish elders prohibited men from reading the book. The Song of Solomon before they were 30 years old because they felt that there was the danger of reading into it the spicy and the suggestive, the vulgar and the sensuous and the sexual. And they probably kept women from reading it at all. So we can't ignore the sexual subject matter of the book of the Song of Solomon, but we can appreciate the context in which it is written or it is placed a godly marriage. So the Song of Solomon is necessary reading, not only for the married, but for the engaged, the single person, the young person who wants to understand God's design for marriage. Now in today's news, hey, we all see it. what's going on. TV, movies, you know, we're inundated with stories about sexual experiences, you know, secret meetings and, and extramarital affairs. And today's media teaches that immorality means freedom. And, and and you know and, and perversion is natural and commitment is a thing of the past. And then I've heard many people say over there is, hey, well, God created as a sexual being, so so why should we abstain? Well, and you read the Song of Solomon and many other parts of Scripture, it tells you why. Sex was created by God, and it was pronounced good in the Garden of Eden. But it has been twisted, it's been exploited, and it's been turned into an urgent like. You got to do it now kind of thing. And then listen, spur of the moment and self-gratifying thing to do. Love has turned into lust. Giving has turned into getting. Lasting commitment has turned into no strings attached. And in reality, sexual intercourse, the physical and emotion union of male and female should be a holy way of celebrating love. And producing children and experiencing pleasure. Protected by the commitment of marriage. You see, God thinks sex is important. And scripture includes many guidelines for its use and warnings about its misuse. And sex is always mentioned in the context of a loving relationship between husband and wife. The Song of Solomon is the intimate story, as I've said, of a man and a woman. Their love, their courtship, and their marriage. Solomon probably wrote this song in his youth, before he was overtaken by his own obsession with women, sex, and pleasure. It's a moving story, a touching story, a drama, a poem, a song. Song of Solomon presents the love talk, the dialogue between a simple Jewish young woman, the Shulamite woman, and her lover, Solomon, a king. And they describe, Solomon and the Shulamite woman, they describe in intimate detail their feelings for each other and their longings to be with each other, to be together. And throughout the dialogue, sex and marriage are put in their proper, God-given perspective. In 1 Kings 4.32, we read, He, that is Solomon, he spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. So out of all the 1,005 songs that Solomon wrote this is the song of songs. It's the best of the bunch, if you will. And the relationship described between Solomon and the Shulamite woman, it gives us a picture of the love between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. And when he returns and he takes his people to heaven, the bride will become his wife. Now, there's no explanation of who the Shulamite woman is or what wonderful things have happened to her. But the Shulamite woman speaks out about her love for the king. Now, you'll notice, well, I don't know about all of your Bibles, but in many of the Bibles, it shows you who's speaking. It talks about uh, uh, the, uh, uh, Solomon, all right? He's the man, all right? Uh, the Shulamite is the woman. And then the daughters of Jerusalem are the women who serve as the attendants of the bride, that is, the attendants of the Shulamite woman, So you'll see them speaking at different times. So let's begin with verse 1 now of chapter 1 of the Song of Solomon. And it begins, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. The Song of Songs means the loveliest of songs. And there are two main speakers in this book. Again, that is the woman, the Shulamite, and the man, Solomon. And even though Solomon wrote this book, the point of view is given mostly that of his bride. Verse 2. Okay, now this is the Shulamite, the the bride, the woman who is speaking. She's speaking about her, her, her man, Solomon. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. This introduction sets the emotional setting for everything that follows. The word love here, in verse 2, is the Hebrew word. And it's used here, and it means sexual love, as it does in other places, in Ezekiel 16, 8, Proverbs 7, 18, and Ezekiel 23, 17. This is the Hebrew word that comes closest to the Greek word for eros, where we get our, our word erotic. And in the Song of Solomon, this plural word is a sign of intensity, and it speaks of divinely blessed lovemaking. Here in verse 4, in Solomon 4.10, Solomon 7.12, and Solomon five Song of Solomon 5.1. She here, here she recalls his love and how it was tenderly expressed. She yearns for him to kiss him again, to kiss her again, here in verse 2. Men... Take lessons from Solomon. And ladies, use Solomon as your standard for picking a soulmate. Take notes. A kiss is an expression of love. The kiss in that day was the promise of peace and a gesture of peace. Solomon's name means peace. He was a prince of peace. As we know, Jesus Christ is the the prince of peace. And Solomon ruled in Jerusalem, the city of peace. The Shulamite girl is the daughter of peace. The kiss signifies that there's a very special, a very personal, close relationship between the two, like the Lord Jesus Christ has with his bride. It's the kiss that seals the marriage vow between Christ and the believer. You know, it's just like the custom in, in our marriage ceremonies today. You know, when, when, when I perform a marriage ceremony and both couples have said I do, what comes after now you may kiss the bride now i say you may kiss the wife because now she is his wife but nonetheless now you may kiss the bride the kiss is a serious thing it seals the marriage covenant and that's what jesus did i'm sorry that this is what made judas's kiss such a horrible thing it made judas's kiss such a double crossing and disgusting thing because he betrayed jesus with a kiss Judas used what was normally an expression of tenderness to express disloyalty. Nobody likes a traitor, and especially a traitor who betrays love and friendship. There's nothing worse than a traitor in marriage. Jesus said to Judas when he came with the mob in Luke 22:48, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? The very symbol of love. And then it says here in verse 2, Oh, cried the Shulamite woman. You know, she cried as her heart thought about her beloved man. And she thought of how he'd shown his love toward her. And she says, Oh, for another kiss. Not only did the Shulamite's beloved, Solomon, tenderly show his love to her, but it was also very exciting. She says, notice that for, she says, for your love is better than wine. There at the end of verse 2. For your love is better than wine. Now, wine is intoxicating. You know, when you drink too much of it, and especially in the old days, if you did that, you know, before Christ, it arouses you. It arouses the body. It goes to the head. It arouses the whole body. You know, it, it, it makes you lose self-control. It arouses the inner person. And she's saying here, your love, she's speaking to her man, Solomon, your love is better than wine. Because, you see, wine can be a mocker. That's why it's better than wine. Wine can be a mocker. It can lead people into doing foolish things, but not the love of Jesus Christ. And even though it excites, it never humiliates or defiles. It never robs. It never robs us of reason and responsibility. In Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27, Paul said, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Jesus says, Paul said about Jesus that one day Jesus is going to present his bride before the Father. And he's going to present her faultless, no wrinkles, no spots, because he's taken such good care of her. But the effects of wine are shallow, and the effects of wine are temporary. It wears off, but the enrichment that comes from true love is deep, and it's lasting. Paul made that clear in Ephesians 5.18. Some Christians have gotten so used to the wonderful truths of the Word of God that they hardly get excited anymore when they read it. In the word of God, we read the wonderful promises of God. You know, when we worship, we sing the wonderful praises to God. But a lot of times without getting excited. God's words are intoxicating truths. Why? Because they're better than wine. To think that Jesus loves me. Someone who doesn't even deserve you know, uh, d- to stand before him. He left his glory in heaven to come and to rescue me from my sin and judgment. I mean, don't you think that's exciting? So then, the Shulamite woman here, in verse 2, recalls the passion that her beloved had shown her. He showed her that he loved her, and, he thought, and, and, and the thought of it, like strong wine, made her long for more and more of him. You know, who wouldn't want more? It was the most exciting thing that ever happened to her. Verses 3 and 4 now, she talks about him. She talks about Solomon. Look at verses 3 and 4. The Shulamite woman is still speaking. She says, Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me away. We will run after you. Now, the daughters of Jerusalem. these are the, the daughters of Jerusalem are the ones who attended to the Shulamite woman. They say, we will run after you, king, thinking, uh, speaking of King Solomon. Now the Shulamite speaks. The king has brought me into his chambers. The daughters of Jerusalem now speak. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. And then the Shulamite woman says, rightly do they love you. Speaking of her. Of her Solomon, so she talks about Solomon here in verses three and four. Two things just thrill her, the Shulamite woman about her beloved man. First, she talks about the magnificence of his presence. How do you think about your husband or your spouse? Do you build them up? Do you build them up or, or tear them down? She says here in verse three a, because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is o- is ointment poured forth. It was customary in biblical times to rub the body with fragrant ointments or oils after a bath in preparation for a festive occasion. We see that in Ruth chapter 3, verse 3. She says, your name, also there in, thir- in the uh, second part of verse 3. Your name, she says, the Shulamite speaks of her, of her beloved's reputation here. And she compares it to a very lovely aroma he was an object of desire to her and also to young women everywhere. That's why the daughters of Jerusalem said, "We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine." And so, again, he was an object of desire to young men, young women everywhere. Notice verse three c. It says, "Therefore the virgins love you." The word virgins means virgins means. Women of marriageable age, they're the same as the daughters of Jerusalem mentioned there in verse 5. The word love here is the common Hebrew meaning to love, and it's used of romantic feelings. In other passages, this word means to choose someone as an act of the will, something that they chose to do, somebody that they picked. So this Hebrew word, love here, shares some but not all of the meanings of the Greek word agapeo. Speaking of agape love, that unconditional love, a person that comes into a room that's wearing perfume or cologne, it draws your attention right away. They don't have to say a word. They don't have to say, I'm here. The perfume tells everybody that they're in the room, that they're there. Just like a perfume and cologne tells everybody you're there, in the same way, just the name Of that person. The name of the beloved gives this woman, the Shulamite woman, a sense of his presence. He didn't have to be there physically, just his name made her heart beat faster and made her blush as if he was standing there with her in her presence. When you hear his name, in this situation, ladies, when you hear his name, what's your first thought? And it's the same thing with the guys: excitement or uneasiness. Is there some doubt? Now, going back a bit, you'll probably remember uh, in high school when you thought you were in love. The guy, and I, from what I remember, was usually the girl who was in love, scribbled on the piece of paper, on their notebook, on their hands, the love of their boyfriend. Because they wanted everybody to know. This this excited them. They would write their name everywhere. Because seeing that name brought joy and excitement to their heart. Isaiah 49, 16. God says, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. God has made himself known to us by his name. That wonderful name. And the Old Testament saints fell in love with the name Jehovah. There were several names that made it known to those that he loved that, he, that, that, that he'd meet every need of man. That name that's above all names. Secondly, she also talks about his charismatic personality in, in the second part of verse 3 through verse 4. In the uh, second part of verse 3, it says you know, he could draw others to her. Notice it says, uh, because of the fragrance of your ointment, your name is is, uh, ointment poured forth. Therefore, the, the virgins love you. Again, he had this charismatic personality. He could draw others to himself. He says, they says there, notice the girls are all in love with you. Her beloved had an irresistible personality. Others were drawn to him. They had romantic feelings for him. The first part of verse 4, four I say, look at it, it says, draw me away, we will run after you. Take me with you, they're saying. She's saying, let us, let, us, let us run away together. So the thought of his kisses and his caresses and remembering the beauty of his total personality, it sets off this anxious desire in her. She says, I gotta be with him, I wanna be with him. She just wants to grab, grab her man and run off. So they can be alone together in the privacy, notice, of his private chambers, the second part of verse 4 says. The chambers being the bridal chamber. You see, she's expressing her desire for intimacy and marriage with her love. And this suggests that that physical desire is a characteristic of romantic love. And properly channeled, that desire is good and not evil. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection. In other words, you don't let your feelings and emotions overpower reason. You should be intoxicated with the one that you love. You should be intoxicated with love for your own mate rather than wine, drugs, or other people. Proverbs 5, 18, and 19 says, Let your fountain be blessed. And rejoice with the wife of your youth as a loving deer and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured. The word enraptured means intoxication. It means to make you like to reel, you know, like to stagger, you know, as one who is intoxicated. But it says here to be intoxicated by her love and or or with her love. But you see, choosing a marriage partner, it, it shouldn't be based on just physical attraction. The beloved speech here indicates that your name, notice in verse 3, it speaks of the character and the virtue and the integrity of a person. And this is so important when choosing a spouse. The chamber is the secret of his presence. It's his pavilion. It's like the Holy of Holies for a husband and a wife. It's like the Holy of Holies was within the sanctuary. It's the secret place away from the noise and the crowd. It's the place in the cleft of the rock that God has made for us, where He can cover us with His hand and commune with us. And we'll be glad; we will be glad and rejoice in You. Verse four says, "Notice, we will remember Your love more than wine, and how right they are to adore You." Verses five through six. Now, we read uh, again. The Shulamite woman speaks of of, of her insecurity. Verse 5, I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. The Shulamite woman worked in the fields. That's why she had dark skin. That's why she got a tan. Her tan made her feel insecure. She says, don't look at me. And she compared her tan to the tents of Kandar, which were made of black goat's hair. Now, she's almost apologizing for the way that she looks because her brothers made her work in the vineyards. She couldn't take care of her own vineyard. In other words, herself and her appearance, she couldn't take care of. Her own vineyard, which refers to her own appearance, she couldn't take care of it because she was too busy working in the vineyards. But she says something here that's really great. She says, notice in verse 5a, I am dark but lovely. I like that. She says, I might be tanned, but you know what? I'm still beautiful. You see, she knew that she was beautiful. She said, like the curtains of Solomon. And it's a good thing. You know what? It's a good thing to accept ourselves for what we are. Because you know what? God made us that way. God made us that way. And you know what, believe it or not, there's something beautiful in each single human being, and we need to remember that. God sees beauty in us, and he has a wise and wonderful purpose for making us that way. And so the Shulamites' natural beauty, tan and everything, was more beautiful than, than those who, you know, were all perfumed and, and you know, uh, had, had all of their makeup and their flashiness of all of the palace women. Women, Hers was natural. Theirs was artificial. And her beauty was within, and it could only be improved, never spoiled by the sun. Peter said in First Peter 3, 3 and 4, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, speaking of the attitude, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. But it speaks about a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, this does not, ladies, does not mean being a doormat. It doesn't mean all being all quiet and mousy. It says a woman it speaks of a woman that's calm and under control. It's a classy lady. Now we have to accept ourselves for what we are. The psalmist said, We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are beautiful in God's sight. Our appearance is important. And we should always do everything we can to look our best for our spouse. But again, we know that's not always possible. The Shulamite woman, she didn't need a facelift. She didn't need a tummy tuck or any other, you know, types of improvements to make her more beautiful. Her tan only made her more beautiful. And Solomon thought she was beautiful and that's all that matters. Tan and all. You see, her good looks caught Solomon's eyes. She didn't hate herself. She didn't preoccupy herself with her defect as, as others looked at it as a defect. And that's a good thing. She didn't look at, her def- at herself as having a defect. And, 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 you know, too many times we focus on, on what we think are defects. It's not a healthy thing to do, to just focus on ourselves. She wisely focused her thoughts back to her beloved, her man. And verses 7 through 8 now. She speaks about the freedom that, that, that her beloved shared with her. Look at verses 7 and 8. Tell me, again, this is, uh, she's speaking this to her beloved Solomon. Tell me, o, who, o you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon? For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? Again, Now the beloved answers her, Solomon answers, If you do not know, O fairest among women... Follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. You whom I love is more literally whom my soul, my inner being loves. She pictures Solomon as the shepherd of Israel. The words here, one who veils herself. Solomon as the king was busy doing king stuff. You know, the affairs of the kingdom and all the things that he had responsibilities for. She doesn't want to veil herself as a prostitute would in order to get his attention. Nor does he want to be left alone. She wants to be his true companion. So the beloved's feelings of insecurity help stir up a desire to be with her. With her beloved. So she has these, these feelings of insecurity. She wants to be with her beloved because he makes her feel secure. She felt secure with her man. She longed for the security of his presence. And the basis of true love is commitment, where there's real love in a relationship. There's ne- never any fear or deceit, nor abuse or being taken advantage of. Notice, she called him a shepherd. Not in words here, but she spoke about his flocks. Where do you keep your flocks? So she was calling him a shepherd, which was a common nickname for a man in ancient Near Eastern love poetry. What king, what, what king do we know is a shepherd? The King Jesus Christ. He is the king of kings. He was a shepherd. It was his favorite name for himself. The bride says to her shepherd king, notice here she, she, she says, Where do you feed your flocks, Solomon? She says, I want to be there too. Wherever you are, that's where I want to be. She says, She's saying, why should I settle for your friends when I can have you? She says, I want to be with you. And she is intent on going out to find him. But she says, I don't want to veil myself. Because you see, she couldn't go out looking for Solomon without veiling herself. But then she would be mistaken for a prostitute. Because they would veil themselves. So she'd be mistaken for a prostitute out there, you know, plying her trade among the other shepherds. The Shulamite woman wants to be with her beloved Solomon. She, has, she doesn't have a desire to wander around, to go here and there. All she wants is the freedom to be with him. She didn't want to have to wander from flock to flock looking for Solomon. What she wanted was the freedom so that she didn't need to veil herself to hide herself. She longed for that freedom like a thirsty deer longs for water. You see, you, you only want to be with him. You're content to be with him. You don't want to wander here or there. And then Solomon's reply to her is really hard to understand. Does he tell her where to meet him here? Does she go there? Does she find him? It doesn't really tell us. She wants to be with him in the worst way and almost at any price, willing to put on a veil and to be mistaken for a prostitute, even at the risk of being called a prostitute. In verse 8, it says, if you do not know, he says, if you do not know, feed your little goats. In other words, he's telling her it would be better if you return to the borders of Lebanon and the life of the farm rather than live alone and anxious in Solomon's palace. The point of this verse is that one should always count the cost of marriage to a particular person before the marriage. He was a busy man as he king. If she comes with her own little flock of kids, her own little flock of goats, then it won't be so obvious why she's out on the hillside. They would think that she was out there taking care of sheep. And Solomon directs her to come to the shepherd's tents, which were temporary huts or, or shelters where they could be alone. She just wanted the freedom to be with him. And then he he finishes in verse 8, O fairest among women. And the word fairest is the usual Hebrew word for beautiful. In closing, tenderness, excitement, character, security, freedom, virtue, and integrity were all the things that she mentioned in Solomon, in being with him. All of these things are sound and important in a godly relationship. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful book, Lord, and we're just beginning. We're just starting to get into the depths of it, Lord, and it will get deeper as we go along. But Father, may you give us the insight. May your spirit reveal to us, God, the things of God, the spirit of God. And that, Father, you would help us To come in line with your scriptures, Lord. the Father, that we would look at these things also that are important in, again, a godly relationship. And Lord, if we don't see them now, may we work on them. Father, may we work on them. May we recognize them. May we practice them, God. Only to improve and to make things better than what they are, God. There's always room for improvement, Father. So help us, God. Show us the way. We thank you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.